This is GamesAtWork.biz, your weekly podcast about gaming, technology, and play. Your hosts are Michael Martin, Andy Piper, and Michael Rowe. The thoughts and opinions on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and are not the opinions of any organization which they have been, are, or may be affiliated with. This is episode 442, Giving Thanks with Tech. Hello and welcome again to gamesatwork.biz, your weekly technology podcast. My name is Andy Piper and I'm all on my own this week. After several weeks of actually not being available to record shows with the two Michaels, this week I am the only one here doing the recording. So I'm in my solo recording studio with no friends on Skype to look at and make faces at on the video that you don't usually get to see. And uh, yeah, so we'll see how this is going to work out. I think this is my first proper solo outing, if I remember rightly. Maybe I'd done one a long time ago. Apologies in advance, you're getting the British accent Andy as opposed to the interspersing of Michaels with me either correcting them or agreeing with them or otherwise. Well this weekend of course is the US Thanksgiving and Michael and Michael are both absolutely deservedly spending time with their families which is fantastic. So I thought I would start off this unusual solo show by giving some very public and absolutely heartfelt thanks to Michael Martin and Michael Rowe, and not just for covering for me on the show for the last few weeks while I've been busy elsewhere. As many of our listeners will know, I've had a bit of a, uh, well, a bit of a uh, challenging couple of years, what with my job going away about uh, just over a year ago, and lots of other things changing, and Honestly, these two humans have really been great to me. It was also wonderful to finally hang out with them both in the same physical place at the same actual time when I was in North Carolina last month. So, surprise, Michael and Michael, thank you both for 15 years or so of friendship and support and continuing to involve me in your podcasts. All right, with that out of the way, let's hit the usual roundup of tech news and links because things don't stop for Thanksgiving. And I think the first thing that we have to discuss, and incredibly the whole drama has played out literally since the last episode of the show was recorded, is everything that has happened in the last week around OpenAI. Now, unless you've been living uh, completely offline, you probably are aware that last weekend, the board of OpenAI very suddenly uh, dismissed the CEO, Sam Altman, um, and that was followed by various other folks leaving the company. Then Microsoft stepped in to try to suggest that they were gonna hire, Sam Altman and Greg and other people from the company and then various 
members of staff said they would go. They went through, I think, two interim CEOs, the CTO, if I'm correct, and then um, a person who'd previously been at Twitch were both appointed. And then finally, Sam Altman was reinstated. Everything went seemingly back to normal, except for the fact that the board members um, were changed up. Now, the link I have in the show notes uh, is one from the FT.com, the Financial Times, uh, talking about, I think the title is, OpenAI has just fused their corporate kill switch. And I have a lot of opinions, and I've been asked a lot this week about this whole story. Now, OpenAI is, of course, a hot property, hot topic. Lots of people have heard of it. It's got AI in the title. It's the company behind ChatGPT and DALI, which have both been hugely popular, successful, and interesting in the last 12 months. And remarkably, it is only just over sort of 12 months that these things have been in the media. And because OpenAI is so prominent and predominant in the narrative, it's becoming synonymous with this whole concept of generative AI, large language models. You've heard Michael and Michael and I talk several times this year about how we really don't love the use of the term AI, artificial intelligence, to cover this range of machine learning based technologies that are possibly better thought of as applied statistics or this kind of super autocorrect, if you like. And we talked a few weeks ago when I was uh, with Michael Martin um, about the concept of entropy where where a lot of these models are now being trained back on themselves or their own outputs and there's a question of how long these things can be sustained based on lack of potentially based on lack of novel new material but anyway let's talk about what's happened at OpenAI this week now first of all it is 100% a remarkable series of events that has just occurred in the space of just, I think, five or six days. OpenAI went through, I think, four CEOs uh, based on Sam Altman going away and coming back again. And there was obviously a huge outpouring of support for him from inside of the corporate business part of OpenAI, which itself was incredible to see and remarkable. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff that's gone on that we are not aware of. I think what happened initially with Microsoft very quickly moving to stabilize things, to offer to hire Altman and others and set up this division was very likely, in my opinion, bearing in mind all opinions on the show are our own, very likely a PR slash market uh, exercise to stabilize the share price make sure that people weren't suddenly panicked and spooked by the fact that microsoft that has made massive investments with OpenAI and bet a lot of their technology on top of OpenAI's technologies that i think there was a, some very smart uh, deal making done very quickly to try to put things into a situation that could be sustained the interesting thing to think about with OpenAI is that evidently um, for those of you that are not aware it has had this non-profit element to it this element of the board the board itself that was from the 
the public interest, if you like, part of the uh, the business. So the idea of open AI, developing AI for the benefit of humanity, for the benefit of progress, being governed by this kind of public interest board, who for some reason that we are not currently fully informed of, as I record this, decided that they could no longer work with Sam Altman. And then there's been this kind of backpedaling. And frankly, that board has now been got rid of, replaced, reshuffled with some people whose names are familiar in the tech industry, in particular uh, folks like Brett Taylor, who's done a bit of a merry-go-round on different corporate boards, including one that I may previously have had some experience of. I think this story in the FT is one of the better ones that I've seen this week, talking about the fact that the company did have this oversight from a non-profit public interest and the idea that they've now as a corporation sort of taken control of the narrative got rid of that oversight uh, and now have their own destiny in their own hands so i think that uh, that is something that we really should be as a community and a society paying a lot of attention to i think there's a lot of other elements to all of this there's been some news stories recently. I know the three show hosts have shared between us this back and forth recently in uh, the law courts about who owns data and, and, and artists complaining that their written works have been used to train models and so on and things going backwards and forwards. And I think that it's unsurprising that a lot of these AI companies are very uh, interested in moving f- faster, moving forward much more quickly before these things can be questioned too hard. Because there are some really important questions that we as a society, in my opinion, should be getting to grips with in this particular round and set of technologies. So I really wanted to draw attention to the OpenAI Kill Switch article. There's been some really interesting articles as well going in all directions that I've, I hope to write about myself recently. One of my uh, favorite outcomes as well was Jeff Jarvis wrote a piece um, right after the weekend uh, calling out um, what OpenAI are doing, uh, really expressing a lot of scepticism coming at it from a historical angle as, an, as well. I know for a fact, because we talked about it in our uh, conversations this week, that Michael Rowe in particular um, found Professor Jarvis's uh, headline a little bit sensationalist, but I think that there was some really good stuff said in that article. Uh, I'll add the, lo- note, the link to the show notes as well. But I certainly shared it myself on Mastodon and the Fediverse this week. At the risk of spending 20 minutes of your time and my time talking about OpenAI, it's definitely a key thing to pay attention to. Don't forget there are other AI technologies and competitors in that space beyond OpenAI itself. Um, So do uh, remember that is the case. But let's shift our attention to talking about gaming. So I found this great link from Federico Vitici from Mac Stories this week, and he posted that uh, this is how you do game preservation right. Absolutely wild to see a proper change log for a 25-year-old game. This was a link to the Half-Life 25th anniversary website that Valve put out um, going back to November 19th, 1998, when Half-Life first came out. And they have incredibly released a 25th anniversary update. And I think another company in a very similar space that's done a great job with this kind of thing was 
ID with uh, the Doom and Quake sources where they released those as open source over time and allowed other people to take them and build them for more modern systems. The website that the Half-Life and Valve team have put together is really lovely. It has a, a 25th anniversary documentary element which is available on YouTube. I haven't watched it yet, I've put it on my watch later list. I have a really bad habit of going through the internet through the week and clicking watch later on things on YouTube embeds and then very rarely watching them but I do want to watch this one and they got back together the original uh, development team to talk about it they've done a massive 25th anniversary update they've made it fully compatible on Steam Deck so it's Steam Deck verified which I'm looking forward to when in fact I've already downloaded it on Steam Deck and uh, been uh, playing back through the the beginning part of the game i haven't got very far yet there was another third party um build called black camisa uh which was essentially taking the sources and doing stuff with it that made it run very nicely on the steam deck but now that you can get the full thing why not i mean it's valve's machine <laughs> it makes sense for that they uh, make it available on the, the steam deck they've put in new multiplayer maps they've put in loads of the mods they've updated the graphics settings they've updated the ui scaling for the, all the higher resolutions that are possible now <laughs> it says on the website we built most of this stuff for 640 by 480 crts and apparently some of you have upgraded since then who knew they've they've done a, an immense amount of work here for and i think deservedly so for a game that is almost mythological um, of course, everybody, uh, or many people, especially in the first-person shooter space, talk about Half-Life uh, as one of the, the big games of its time. And I think they've done a ph phenomenal job of really paying homage to the 25th anniversary of this game. And it is interesting to see the difference in the ways that different companies respond to the popularity and longevity of games or not, or the re-releases of games, whether or not they make you rebuy things, whether or not they make things open source. So yeah, check it out, especially if you're a uh, Half-Life fan, or actually probably if you've never played it before, there's, it's still a good story, still a good game. It's definitely not exactly you know up to the kinds of qualities or graphics you get on the very most modern consoles but it's a great game and you should definitely uh, take a look. On the subject of game preservation, Michael Rowe shared a link about emulating old video game compute, games computers on the Mac from the Cult of Mac website. That was talking about uh, things like, let me have a quick scroll through this because this particular website, or this is OpenMU is what it's uh, referring to, which is a really nice desktop app for the Mac actually. But this website has, whilst I've been recording on my own, very rudely twice interrupted me with audio ads whilst the tab was open, which is extremely upsetting. Michael Rowe, of course, would be telling me that I should be running a pie hole and getting rid of all the ads. But uh, yeah, I'm not. So it also refers to uh, Infinite Mac, which will let you run old Macs in your browser. Uh, it's also referring to various other virtualization options. As a Steam Deck player, I will also say that there is some great material out there for uh, running retro games consoles on the Steam Deck. The Linux Matters podcast, which is a great podcast to listen to, linuxmatters.sh. And they've done a few pieces on running retro games on the Steam Deck.
So if that is your jam, then I recommend going and checking out their podcast. From old games, though, to much, much more recent games, well, a more recent franchise than Half-Life, being Assassin's Creed, and a more up-to-date gaming experience, which is the uh, VR headset environment. There was a great piece in Wired talking about Assassin's Creed Nexus VR. So Assassin's Creed, the most recent one, Assassin's Creed Mirage came out uh, a few months ago. But in the meantime, the Quest, Meta Quest 3 was announced and shipped, in fact. Uh, I know that folks like our friend Epred have one. I'm on the Quest 2 right now. Um, so I pulled out my Quest 2 and I did all the updates because every single time I seem to uh, put it on, which is probably once a month, I would guess, there seems to be some significant update. Dusted it all off and loaded up uh, Assassin's Creed Nexus, which is a uh, VR game in the Assassin's Creed series. And yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I mean, Assassin's Creed itself is a game which literally involves... Uh, a virtual reality environment so the whole premise of the game is that you are put into these historical environments you're reliving people's memories in this kind of um, virtual environment machine called the animus in the, in this case and they, you know they do a nice job here of uh, of using the headset you have to move some three-dimensional objects around in three-dimensional space in order to change between the corporate network and the hacker network I've only played one out of the three historical characters so there's three characters you can play in assassin's creed nexus and they all have different fighting styles and or, or combat styles and it is quite weird a few of the reviews have called out that to take your sword out you have to um, put your hand to your hip but typically with a sword you'd probably be doing it across your body and in this game you have to take it from the hip on the side that your sword is on which is kind of strange Anyhow, I haven't, I've been playing it with all of the features switched on and I haven't myself had vertigo or big problems. The, some of the climbing elements are challenging, but the, the headline here is, the Wired's headline is Assassin's Creed Nexus VR makes the case for immersive gaming, finally. And I would say that actually, I really enjoyed the Star Wars Vader, Vader Immortal game that, that was available on the Quest as well. And it's kind of similar in the sense that you have to climb, you have to do some combat you get to move around it's immersive so i would sort of probably compare it to that it's tied into the assassin's creed franchise so if you're familiar with that it's obviously a lot more fun there's a lot more of a a sense of backstory and what's going on um, i'd recommend it it plays pretty well on the quest 2 i don't know what the difference is between the quest 2 and 3 in terms of graphical upgrades and other things but yeah I thought I'd mention it since we tend to talk about VR on our podcast here. Before I move on I'm going to, to more sort of hardware gaming tech stuff. I'm going to also um, quickly throw in a link here which we shared between us this week which was that Flipboard was reported on The Verge about the fact that they are stopping using X. Flipboard actually started out as a, as a client for Twitter really and kind of evolved into this other sort of media space and they quite early on well i say early on earlier this year or possibly late last year they started their own mastodon instance and have been pretty fediverse friendly open web friendly um, they have now officially said they're not going to be using x anymore i of course deleted my accounts on x um, back in the summer and this week i had an email from x 
announcing that I have a an account manager for advertising, which was great after I deleted 15 accounts and expected all of my personal data to be removed from the systems. Anyhow, that's a my problem. Um, but a bit of an interesting little email I had from them. Switching gears again, let's go back to talking about hardware. In this case, I've got a couple of uh, hardware stories. You can tell that Michael Martin is not with me here to finesse my run of show and have everything organized because I've just realized that I I should have linked two stories together and I haven't. So I'm now going to jump across to a story from The Verge. Kodak releasing a Super 8 film camera again. Now, I'd forgotten this, but apparently the CES 2016, and if I go back through the show archives, I might well find that we've talked about this in the past. Kodak said they were going to release a Super 8 film camera. Again, Super 8 being a a film format they had back in the 70s and 80s that was wildly popular. Now, they announced it at CES 2016. People were excited. They said it was going to cost about $400 to $750. By 2018, evidently, the price had gone up to about $2,500 to $3,000. Guess what? It's actually going to cost nearly $6,000, $5,500, which is very expensive. And unless it's a remarkable piece of equipment, I don't know whether they have a market anymore. The other interesting thing, uh, an amusing kind of thing, is that uh, they it's obviously been updated since the, the original version. They've got the LCD screen and they've got all the other nice bit niceties that you'd have in a modern camera. You've got a micro SD card to record onto uh, for audio, that is. But um, they have got a micro USB charging connector, which is a bit awkward. And I don't even know whether that means they're able to launch it in Europe because I thought that in Europe now you have to have USB-C as your charging port. If you're into cameras, that's one to go look at on The Verge. Um, There's some video uh, embedded. It is pretty cool. I like the idea of it. The cost is wow. But maybe we should all just be getting used to multi-thousand dollar price tags uh, when we look at things like the the Apple uh, Vision Pro and, and other things coming along at high price points. Talking of the Vision Pro, and this is the one I should probably have linked to the other VR story. Uh, there's also a piece that uh, came out on Hackaday, which is one of my favorite websites, about the Quest 3 headset being able to be hacked to capture 3D video. So um, I know that the next uh, iPhone iOS update should enable me to capture 3D video or capture video for the Vision Pro on my iPhone 15 Pro, which I know Michael Rowe is excited about that I'll be able to film my daily life and he'll be able to relive it on his Vision Pro when it arrives in full three-dimensional quality, but uh, spatial quality, spatial computing, spatial video, spatial, spatial, spatial. But uh, apparently, yes, you have to do some fiddling to uh, enable developer mode on the Quest 3. And it's an Android, so the Quests are Android headsets, essentially. So you use Android Debug to enable it. Yeah, there's, it's quite a lengthy process. Maybe somebody like Epred, who's going to probably add the Vision Pro as his 48th headset uh, in his collection. I can only imagine he has a, a massive cavern somewhere in the in the Pred cave, just with a wall covered with... Uh, VR headsets on hooks that he can just select the one he needs for the for the day and the type of mission he's going on. Anyway, maybe he can uh, record on the 
on the Quest 3 and then replay it all on the Vision Pro when his Pro arrives. Okay, I've talked a lot, you've listened a lot, I've had a lot of fun going through this week's links, but I wanted to wrap up with a fun link and a fun game, as befits our Games at Work uh, podcast naming. Uh, Brickception, brickception.xyz. Check it out, Brickception. You're going to want to play this in a desktop browser because it requires you to enable pop-ups. So you have to enable pop-ups. This is basically Breakout, like, or as I used to re- remember it back in my BBC Micro days, Arkanoid. Breakout, played in a browser, but the paddle is a pop-up, pop-out second browser window, which contains another game of Breakout. It's amazing. You have to try it. <laughs> I love it. And there's two games of Breakout and you have to win both of them. It's madness. But uh, it's open source and you can go check it out. All right, everybody. That is my uh, total sum of breath for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the links. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I will be back with you as soon as I can be. And the Michaels will be back with you Uh, on a regular schedule happy thanksgiving see ya you've been listening to gamesatwork.biz the podcast about gaming technology and play we are part of the blueberry podcasting network and would like to thank the band random encounters for their song big blue you can follow us on twitter at gamesatwork underscore biz or at our website at gamesatwork.biz